You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It is not clear in the industry what we're after. Are we trying to have a an agreement to have a minimum level of compliance on best practices in cybersecurity, or are we taking a risk-based approach? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a warrantless phone record surveillance program. I explain how reporters from Rolling Stone tracked visitors to Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago. And later in the show, Nick Sana of the Fair Institute and Safe Security is here to discuss challenges the White House faces in attempting to harmonize critical infrastructure regulations. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, I am going to start things off for us this week. And uh, I have an article from uh, Rolling Stone. This is written by Aram Sinreich and Jesse Gilbert. And the authors of this article went out and logged into one of the commonly available data brokers, uh, an organization called NEAR, N-E-A-R, the opposite of FAR, and they wanted to see if they could track the comings and goings of public locations or private locations, locations. And in this case, they chose, wait for it, Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Donald Trump's, uh, what fortress? he refer- Well, what he, what he, his fortress of solitude. Yes. Yeah. What, what he refers to as his Southern White House, um, and certainly, a, you know, one of the most well-known, uh, locations and residences, uh, in the United States, if not the world. Yeah. I mean, subject to secret service protection. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, it's no doubt is it is an important place, but also has, uh, had controversy for the, the potential comings and goings of people there, uh, the guests, there's the whole thing with the, um, the top secret documents and all those kinds of things. So it, it's a place of much interest and intrigue. Uh, so the folks at Rolling Stone were curious, what could they find out through uh, run-of-the-mill data brokerage folks? And the answer was a lot. <laughs> they, they were able to, uh, to track uh, using location data, which we've talked about here a lot, you know, the location data that is tracked on all of us through our phones and the apps that we use. They were able to track... Food delivery workers, mail carriers, guests, all all sorts of people coming and going from Mar-a-Lago. 
Now, to be clear here, there are no accusations of anything being underhanded or, or you know, things that should not be happening. But it is interesting that um, they could track who was coming and going. One of the things that this is able to do is it will tell you who came and went from Mar-a-Lago, but it will also tell you where they spend most of their nights, which means where do they live, where do they sleep. And this is all free. I mean, they are not... They didn't exchange Bitcoin with somebody on the dark web to obtain this data. This is just through a free version of one single data broker's web application. Exactly. So it's very simple. Any idiot, I won't say any idiot, uh, but (laughs) most people who are mildly technologically savvy would be able to do this uh, if they cared to. Right. Like the old saying goes, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. Right. Um. So they were able to nail down, for example, who were some of the likely visitors to Mar-a-Lago. There was uh, uh, someone, a pastor, uh, Abraham Adeyemi, who uh, is a pastor at the Fellowship Baptist Church, uh, which is about 20 minutes uh, from Mar-a-Lago. By Googling uh, some of the locations that came up in this uh, search, they were able to um, narrow it down that it was probably him. Trump had retweeted a tweet that he had posted that uh, Mr. Adeyemi had posted uh, about a uh, Nigerian pro-Trump parade back in October 2020. So this would be a likely person who would visit Mar-a-Lago, obviously a, a friend and supporter of former President Trump. So, I mean, it's fun and it's funny. And, you know, obviously Rolling Stone is a very left-leaning publication. So for them to set their targets on Donald Trump is, you know, wah, wah, wah. Man, uh, dog bites man <laughs> news. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, you know, take take that for what it's worth and, and all of the baggage that comes along with it. But I think this is a fun example, perhaps even a sobering example of how easy it is that anybody, these authors of this article pointed out, they were they were sitting in their living rooms and they could log on to a free service, put in a location, and track the comings and goings of that location and narrow down with very little effort who the actual people were who were coming and going from that location. So Mar-a-Lago is one location. Ben, what are some locations of concern? Right. I mean, we're talking about locations that present major national security concerns, the Pentagon, CIA headquarters in Langley, the White House. There are certainly uh, other physical properties that might be subject to this kind of surveillance that might be uh, more serious in terms of national security implications than the former president's residence, although not to minimize the uh, security interests involved there. Yeah. He is the former president, might be the future president. Yeah. Uh, so there's certainly something to worry about there. I think the real takeaway from the story, it's not as much a Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago story as it is about the ease of obtaining this data. Uh, and it's not just legitimate actors, as they mentioned, like journalists and prosecutors, But if you had blackmailers or foreign intelligence uh, organizations that wanted to obtain this data, they could do so for free and they could do so easily. They might use it to pester a U.S. official with the threat of releasing information. I mean, maybe not Donald Trump, but let's say some other U.S. politician uh, was having an extramarital affair and uh, that had been revealed based on free searches of this data. Uh, that could be used as blackmail, and that could have national security implications uh, as well. So 
It is very serious. And of course, it doesn't only apply to Donald Trump. I think all of us are willingly giving up our location through the thousands of applications that we use. Many of these applications are just Trojan horses for us to share our location data. That data is very valuable. It's purchased. There are a lot of organizations that purchase this data. And any half-witted journalist uh, who's willing to take the time can really learn a lot about a person, about a location based on this freely available data. They mentioned that like flashlight applications, solitaire games, poker games, all things that seem completely innocuous, but might be applications that are pure Trojan horses for us to release our data. So I think that's certainly a matter of concern. And whether national security is involved or not, I mean, I think this is clearly uh, a loophole in our privacy legal landscape. Uh, The fact that this is so free and easy uh, and the fact that this allows not just journalists but potentially governments to spy on us, uh, I think is a a cause of great concern. I think it's something that Congress really needs to address. Yeah, they point out, the the authors of this article point out, they they say, you know, that they were able to do this using the free version of a single data broker's web app. Uh, They write, now imagine what a dedicated forensic team could do working 24-7 with access to the full paid services of every commercial data broker, in addition to all of the other data sources out there from high-tech hacking to old-fashioned surveillance. It really does kind of tighten the, 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 the holes in the web, you know, that they're able to throw over us to know what we're doing and where we're going. You know, everything from abortion clinics to, to gay bars to uh, protests to uh, meetings with you know, organizations with special interest groups, all of that stuff is so easy to track now. Um, it's a real problem. It is. The last uh, line of this article says, uh, quote, every conversation about the future technology needs to begin with someone asking what's the worst that could happen. That's, I think, is the, that I, I think is the correct frame of looking at this. Even if the specific results of this expose might seem funny, I think we just have to think broadly about the implications of having this freely available surveillance. I do think it's incumbent upon all of us to practice the type of privacy hygiene, if you will, uh, in terms of being selective in what applications we use, turning off location services for apps that we don't use, uh, or even for apps that we do use but do not require location services. I think we all just need to be more judicious about this because I think we're just not aware of how much data we're producing simply by virtue of the fact that we have a smartphone. Yeah. Uh, And I think to the average person engaging in daily smartphone transactions. That's just not something that that crosses their mind. And I think uh, as a society, we need to change that and just raise awareness of how much information we are voluntarily sharing uh, and how easy that information is to obtain. Now, maybe people don't care about it. I mean, this is something that we've talked about in the past. Like, I could get a bullhorn and, you know, go into the middle of Times Square and scream about this all I want. Maybe that's a trade-off most people are willing to accept uh, to get the benefits of location services. Um, You know, if I want to gamble on FanDuel or whatever, they want to know that I'm in Maryland. That's very useful uh, information for them. They'll probably use it, sell it to a data broker. But I just want to place my sports bet. I'm not thinking about the broader implications of uh, me voluntarily giving them that data. So it's just everybody should... Take a pause whenever they download a new application. (laughs) Think about, is this something I really need? Uh, And is this something where 
the app developer is going to get information about me and about my whereabouts that they can sell and, and give to data brokers. I don't know if you are old enough to remember the uh, implementation of the federal do not call list. I'm not that young. I mean, I, I have some <laughs> okay. gray, gray well, hairs on the remaining hairs of my head that I do have. Yeah. Okay. Well, I yeah. I, I guess part of part of why I ask the question that way is that I am old enough that I have lost track of when things happened there in my go. life. All so right. <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, that could have been 20 years ago. It could have been last week. I don't know. But uh, the do not call list, which happened back in the days of landlines, um, was a reaction to the endless uh, a number of uh, solicitors calling our homes, interrupting our dinners, you know, and all that sort of thing. Back in the day where the phone rang, we didn't know who it was. Right. We'd, Right. It could have been our, you know, grandma wanting to wish us a happy birthday, mm-hmm. and it could have been a solicitor. Yeah, we answered the phone. We answered the phone no matter what. That's, <laughs> That's why right. it was much easier to do political polls then, because uh, now people are just like, oh, random number, I'm not picking that up. Right. Yeah. So a couple of questions. I mean, it, would it be possible to have a do not track list? You know, you put yourself on the do not track list, and you say anything coming from my device— is not allowed to be tracked by data brokers. Yeah, I mean, even the most stringent state data privacy laws have not gone that far, although California has come the closest to doing something like that. Uh, I think it is certainly feasible uh, where you could have a phone that opts out to all location tracking except if you explicitly opt in. Right. That's certainly technologically feasible, and it's something that a state legislature could probably mandate. It's just a question of how much the industry would fight against it and how inconvenient it would be for users who don't care about the privacy of their data and just want to take advantage of the wonderful things that come with tracking our location. Yeah. Uh, But if it was really voluntary, I mean, I think this is something like the next version of the CCPA could grapple with where you have a a do not track device that's kind of the first option when you open up that new device and log in. I mean, now, we could just do that now. Uh, We could just turn off all location tracking. That is mostly helpful, although we are still pinging cell phone towers. The government does need a warrant to collect that cell site location information. Right. Um, But, you know, there there are ways we could do that now, but I think any affirmative step that gives people more awareness of exactly what they're giving up when they turn on location services, uh, I think would be useful. The other thing this article points out is that this is a over $300 billion per year business. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And does that, I guess, to what degree does that give them political influence and interest in lobbying to maintain the status quo? I mean, a lot. I always think about the tax prep companies. Mm. Like, yeah, it's a completely useless industry. In other countries, the equivalents of the IRS just calculate your taxes, you sign it, and submit it. Right. Uh, right. A lot of Why lawmakers <laughs> have proposed that our IRS just do that. Yeah. Um, but there is money to be made. There are a lot of accountants out there, a lot of people who work for the tax prep companies who shall remain nameless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just become much harder to reform because of those interests there. Now, they don't go in front of Congress and say, 
this would be a bad policy because I will, you know, lose my third vacation house. Right. They'll go up and say, <laughs> we are adding a, uh, a level of convenience for our customers that wouldn't already exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why would you take away that type of consumer choice? And I think that argument is not only legitimate, but I also think it's persuasive in many circumstances. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, being a powerful industry means you have lobbyists. Uh, it means that there is a lot at stake in any potential policy change here. Uh, and that means there would just be a big fight on the hands uh, of um, these companies and, and Congress. I'll also say, like, me and you talk about this stuff all the time. Yeah. Which means there are a lot of stories like this about how easy it is to collect people's relatively personal data. And I just, maybe this is just kind of depressing, but do enough people care? I mean, I feel like we've now had enough opportunities that if people wanted to learn more about this, they they could have. And so I'm, I guess that's a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, learned helplessness or just, you know, there's there, it, it doesn't rise to the top of the list of things. I, I, people throw up their hands and they say, huh, you know, what yeah, am I going to do? Yeah, the end of the world. What yeah. do I have to hide? Yeah. Right, and how does it actually, the, the, I guess the number of people who get affected by it in their day-to-day is low enough that yeah. it doesn't rise. Uh, again, I, I've, I've said it here before and I'll say it again, you know, uh <laughs> It's one thing to have to go after, you know, Donald Trump in kind of a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of way. He's an easy target, right? Right. Um, I'd say a lazy target, right? (laughs) Yeah. But if somebody did this to Congress and started outing members of Congress and embarrassing members of Congress— I think that's where we would see real change. Not that we're encouraging that. No, but I mean, that's what happened, you know, back in the day with um, video rentals and and library books. Yeah. Same sort of thing happened. Uh, They they went after members of Congress and it got clamped down on. So just an idea there, you know, the John Olivers of the world, the the rabble rousers. Yeah, if you have any, uh, if you need some episode ideas. (laughs) All right. We're happy to be your writers. (laughs) There you go. All right, that's what I have for us this week. Ben, what do you got for us? So I have an article from Wired, uh, and this was about a secretive White House surveillance program which gives cops access to trillions of U.S. phone records. If this sounds familiar, it sort of is. Uh, We've had a lot of controversy over the past decade uh, from what Edward Snowden revealed was our call detail records program, where Mm -hmm. for national security purposes— We collected nearly all call detail records from most of the major phone companies, kept them in a searchable database so we could perform queries on it. Right. A lot of outrage uh, came out of the revelation of that program. We reformed it. Uh, That data was to remain with the telecommunications company, uh, and we would only be able to obtain it as a government with a lawful order from the FISA court. So that's all in the national security context. Uh, that authority has actually expired, uh, which is is interesting, but a little tangential to the story. I think what we weren't keeping track of is how common this is domestically. So there's this little-known surveillance program. Uh, it is called DAS, which stands for Data Analytical Services, and it allows federal, state, and local law enforcement to mine the details of our call records, um, who are, these are people who are not suspects of any crime. It may... Uh, in fact, include victims uh, of crimes. And they do this through what's called chain analysis. So 
you are not just targeting an individual phone number uh, or an individual criminal suspect, for example, but then you're going one, two hops down the line. So uh, anyone who called the targeted individual and then anybody who called that target. And when you start to think about you know, how many phone calls some people make, that ends up being a really significant number uh, of records. So uh, this program, which used to be known as Hemisphere, is run in coordination with AT&T. Uh, they capture and conduct uh, analysis of U.S. call records for state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies. Uh, I think kind of largely because of the Snowden disclosures and the controversy over the call detail records program, the previous version of this program was defunded during the Obama years. Uh, it was brought back during the Trump years uh, in 2017, quickly defunded when Biden became president, and then he was like, you know what? Yeah, it might actually be a useful uh, crime-fighting national security tool. Let, let's bring it back. Let's, so that let's he add. Got, probably got pressure from his agencies to say, hey, this is a tool we This need. is pretty cool, yeah. 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 Uh, so our old friend, Ron Wyden, uh, who was always on the lookout for pervasive bulk surveillance programs, sent a letter to the attorney general saying he had serious concerns about the legality of this program he is not able to divulge all the information about it because it's classified, uh, but he said that this information would justifiably outrage many Americans and other members of Congress. The question is whether all of this is legal. Uh, they reached out to AT&T and a spokesperson declined a request for comment, simply saying that the company is required by laws to comply with lawful subpoenas. Uh, it doesn't seem like if we're talking about a vast number of records here that all of this is pursuant to some subpoena. It seems more bulk and routine than that. Well, this article talks about how AT&T charges money for this so that AT&T has a profit motive here. Right. Uh, so, yeah, law enforcement agencies are paying AT&T to retain this data. What we don't know is how long uh, they're retaining the data, so how far back uh, the data goes. And then, uh, you know, we just have a lot of unanswered questions of what kind of suspects they're using this authority to target, um, in what kind of cases they're using it, what are some of the oversight mechanisms. We're really in the dark on all of that. Uh, what we do know based on leaked documents is that Agencies as diverse as the U.S. Postal Service to the New York Department of Corrections participated in training sessions for DAS, basically an opportunity for law enforcement to say, hey, here's this awesome tool that we have. You want to pay AT&T for it. It can be really uh, useful in apprehending criminals. Right. I think depending on how these subpoenas are structured and whether there are subpoenas, I really do question the legality of this. Um, and I'm concerned about the type of bulk phone metadata collection that uh, we saw with call detail records. Uh, and that was, uh, that really goes against the spirit of the USA Freedom Act, which was passed to reform these practices. Even though this is not wiretapping per se, they're not actually listening in on people's calls. This is just chain analysis. I think it's certainly cause for concern. Uh, and I think it's something that the Justice Department needs to provide answers and uh, how they're using this, how local law enforcement is using this, uh, AT&T's role, you know, how this is legal under a bunch of federal statutes, including the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Now, that act may not apply because 
the collection here occurs uh, through the telecommunications backbone. Generally, uh, ECPA applies to just information kept with the service providers themselves, not over the infrastructure uh, that supports our telephone networks. <laughs> I know. So many loopholes. So many loopholes. This is what lawyers are good for. <laughs> yeah. So just, just so I'm crystal clear here. So after the Snowden revelations, legislation passed on bulk collection. For national right. security purposes, yes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying here is that this program could run afoul of that legislation that was passed post-Snowden. Yeah, so there are two problems with that. One is that that legislation actually expired. Okay. This is one of the weirder things that's happened in the past several years. Yeah. Uh, the House and the Senate passed uh, separate bills to reauthorize the USA Freedom Act and extend it for a number of years. Okay. They happened to do that in March 2020, which was just the worst time to try and reconcile uh, a piece of legislation through Congress since we were all uh, in our houses uh, safely watching Netflix and uh, ordering Amazon delivery services. And so it just kind of never, they never were able to agree on an extension and never got reauthorized. And also, I think our national security agencies determined that the program itself, collecting phone records for national security purposes, just really wasn't worth it anymore for oh, a couple right, of reasons. right, right, right. One is because um, our targets don't really use telephones as much as they used to. And the uh, heyday of Al-Qaeda, for example, uh, and if they are using telephones, it's voice over IP, which would require a different uh, legal authority. And then the other reason is just the nature of the threats that this program was designed to target. Uh, so when we authorized this under the USA Patriot Act in the early 2000s, This is about Al-Qaeda, which was really a top-down organization. So if you could see that person X in the U.S. was calling uh, another person who had been in contact with senior leadership of Al-Qaeda, that would be very useful information. Um, But there aren't really those types of centralized terrorism groups, uh, especially in kind of the ISIS age uh, of the past several years and some of the threats that exist now. It's just far more decentralized. So we allowed that authority to lapse. Uh, but again, that was in the context of national security. This, is, this program is in the context of law enforcement. I do think it's instructive, though, that Congress registered their objections to a dragnet phone surveillance program that captured phone metadata. And I think uh, what Ron Wyden is trying to do here by sending this letter is saying this goes against the spirit of the reform effort we all undertook uh, to get rid of bulk metadata phone collection. Right. Uh, and the fact that this still exists and that we know so little about it, I think is an affront to that entire effort. So Wyden's letter is basically saying to the DOJ, hey, explain yourself here. Yeah, basically, uh, you know, it's a challenge to the attorney general to say, I know what's going on with this program. I'm privy to classified information as a member of various intelligence uh, committees in the Senate. He has access to this information. And I think he's telling uh, Attorney General Garland or Garland's designee to come clean here. Tell us what's going on, how this is being used. Uh, release pages of documents related to this to this project. Now, Wyden's letter... <laughs> let, me, let me just get a little, uh, I don't know, um, <sighs> gossipy here. So, yep. so why, Wyden's letter to the DOJ is leaked. That's how Wired gets a hold of it. 
Do we think Wyden's staff leaked it? You know, I mean... Whoops! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that how these sorts of Did things I work? Did I accidentally CC wire? <laughs> what a terrible mistake. Okay. I have no idea if yeah. that was an earnest mistake. But it's plausible. It's plausible. Yeah. yeah. It is right. plausible. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Nick Sana. He is from the FAIR Institute, and he is president of a cyber risk quantification firm called Safe Security. And we're discussing some of the challenges that the White House faces when it comes to harmonizing some of these critical infrastructure regulations. Here's my conversation with Nick Sana. Yeah, the first thing I would start with is that uh, they had this request for information to see, is this a problem? And uh, from, um, from my own perspective, especially from the Fair Institute perspective, it's absolutely a problem. I don't understand why we need to rehash it again. There's been many studies conducted by many uh, institutions that uh, basically have documented that um, regulatory overlap um, is causing many CISOs to suspend half their time uh, just uh, reporting on, 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 on regu- regulatory requirements versus actually managing security. So depending on the organization, again, it varies from between 60 and, and 70% of the organization. And so that has been widely documented by organizations like, you know, MIT, or I've seen an article on Fordham Law Review, uh, Bipartisan Policy Center, you know, uh, GAO, you know, General Accountability, Government uh, Accountability Office, and, um, you know, and FEI and the IRS. I mean, the number of organizations have been... Um, saying that regulatory, um, can I say, um, uh, harmonization is a must has been well documented. So we were a bit surprised to see that yet another request for information to explain the problem. I think uh, we need to move forward and, uh, and start answering some question: who's going to enforce you know, um, that harmonization. And so that's what uh, I think the main, uh, main subject should be. Can you give us a, an example of where we're seeing this overlap and the kind of uh, trouble that it introduces? Yeah, both in, in government and, can I say, in, in uh, private entities, you know, a CISO may be subject to multiple regulations that can be uh, redundant. I know that if I if I think about the commercial sector as an example, you know, banks have multiple regulators. They need to 
report of Federal Reserve and the um, OCC, so that's Treasury, and then FDIC, and then there's New York, you know, uh, that is requiring some risk assessments to be done, and then uh, state of California and many state requirements. And so you're finding organizations that have like dozens of regulation, oftentimes uh, redundant, slightly different. It keeps, uh, when I say, uh, the teams very busy trying to document uh, the status of affairs versus improving it. Similarly, in government, there's many, uh, they, they have many uh, different regulatory agencies asking for different pieces of information, oftentimes duplicate and, uh, re- and, and redundant in no, no one way, in a setting where, you know, even the, at the uh, office at the National Cyber Director, and uh, they're saying that, you know, organizations should be regulated once and respond once and, and, and be able to report to many. So that's a nice objective, but it's still not the reality for many organizations on the ground. When it comes to critical infrastructure, obviously, you know, we're concerned about safety. Are there any uh, incidents here where, you know, beyond just the amount of time that it takes a CISO to deal with all these sorts of things, uh, are there any contradictory regulations or, or you know, issues along those lines? Uh, I think there are, the, the main contradiction I would say is that um, it is not clear in the industry what we're after. Are we trying to have a, uh, an agreement to have a minimum level of compliance on best practices in cybersecurity, and, or are we taking a risk-based approach? One is the uh, checklist approach of, kind of say, what you should have implemented. And in critical infrastructure, there are a, a minimum set of things you need to do. But the question then is, which of the requirements should be prioritized? How much should be invested in, in meeting those requirements? That's where the risk-based approach come in. And today, as an industry, we focused a lot on the checklist approach, which keeps us busy going down the list, giving equal treatment or similar treatment to many security requirements without understanding what really matters most, what is most effective among my best practices, where we should pile on and, and have a more of a defense in depth strategy. You know. No single control is equivalent to another one, and it changes from company, from organization to organization in different contexts. Um, and so uh, I think that's the biggest disconnect. There are many regulations say we should take a risk-based approach, but then when the inspector general in the case of uh, uh, government agencies uh, shows up, they're asking you for a checklist on things like NIST 853 or NIST CSF, et cetera. In terms of harmonizing all these regulations, I mean, what sort of challenges is the White House up against here? Well, uh, the first thing is that um, apparently uh, every time there's a new regulation, uh, there's no real check on is this uh, regulation overlapping or potentially contradicting. And so, um, you know, in the, uh, in the cybersecurity strategy the White House just published a couple months ago, they say that, you know, they want to ask agencies to kind uh, of say to check uh, whether there is an existing regulation before issuing another one uh, on the same topic or on a similar topic but we need to um, make sure that there's an enforcement there you know today there was a recommendation many executive orders have spoken about it but that has not stemmed the problem i think what that needs to happen is for a uh, government body and we recommended it that it's um, the office of management and budget you know omb at the white house to come up with a directive that any new regulation must complete an analysis looking for potential overlap and redundancy and uh, to avoid, you know, uh, multiplication of regulation. 
And I will go to a step forward. Um, I think that um, to avoid this problem from uh, you know uh, continuing to exist, we need to go to the root cause and have some more fundamental house cleaning to uh, to be done. And our um, recommendation would be for OMB to help create a database of all regulations, starting from federal agencies, and uh, and then potentially applying you know intelligent techniques, maybe AI or maybe an uh, a set of people to look to the redundancy and trying to propose harmonization there. It's, it needs to come from a central body. OMB is in the best position to do that. And, and they can set an example for also state and local have their own regulation in the private sector. I think there would be a great example to lead the industry in helping reduce the busy work and uh, help companies focus on what matters the most, which is securing the environment, you know, versus just checking boxes and demonstrating you're actually doing the work. Why do you think that OMB is the agency to best head this up? Is, I'm, there are other agencies out there like CISA, for example, who specifically work with cyber. What does OMB bring to the table? I think CISA is a, is a good agency as well, but their main focus is to help companies secure uh, their environments from the technical perspective. And so they have become an information sharing, you know, a very, very good information sharing forum and uh, a forum that um, uh, informs agencies on best practices. But I think OMB is an, in, a, in a particular good situation because as of today, all regulatory requirements um, are in, in some, as much as possible, all the reports from the IGs and the data that is harvested by agency to demonstrate a regulatory requirement may get collected by Homeland Security and CISA, but then gets reported to um, the White House at OMB. So. There is a channel today that is existing. We are, our, you know, our recommendation is don't, uh, let's not remove the process, a process that is operating. Let's strengthen it and, uh, and, and, and make it more efficient. So uh, let's create this database. Let's have uh, OMB uh, do a research on which you know, regulation redundant, try to come up with a rule that every agent should have one all-encompassing regulation and then enforce it and... Uh, I think they're in the best position. They have an overarching view across all, all agencies in government to, uh, to make sure that everybody abides by it. Which industries do you think are facing the most difficulties here? Well, I think the industry that I have in critical infrastructure have the largest number of regulation because the strictest one, you know, there are, um, in, 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 for them, it's, uh, in some mandates are not recommendation. It's a must do. You must have these controls and it must be at this level of security. You cannot fail this. And uh, they, it's not an option, you know. And so, and, and these are typically the most strictest control are on top of another series of control may apply to all other agencies uh, in, in uh, can I say, uh, indiscriminately. What are your recommendations then for a, a CISO who's trying to keep up with all of these demands? Uh, any tips or words of wisdom here? I think uh, to see sort of drowning in this is uh, uh, try to um, work with your inspector generals uh, as they come and examine. In, in many cases, uh, try to come up with a uniform approach. Although many agencies have been asked to try to consolidate their findings and make it um, compatible with um, something like NIST, the NIST cybersecurity framework. Be good at, 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 at that. A central set of requirements be pristine to that and trying to map all the other work to that initial effort. So to minimize the disruption, and when uh, they are, uh, they have a strong um, understanding that uh, there are some issues that need, need require attention. 
do a risk analysis and show that they're focusing on the biggest bars of risk, on the biggest items that are at risk versus on, on, on less material elements that may check the box and may not be significant in their context. So one, again, pick up one of the regulatory requirement, be really good at that and show, you know, you are abiding by the spirit of having one regulation done well. And second, on top of it, prioritize also your regulatory work by having a risk assessment to focus, to show that you focus on what matters most. What do you suppose is a reasonable timeline here for, for the White House to, to show some meaningful progress? Listen, if they are uh, within, uh, within this administration, they're able to come out with a directive asking to, uh, uh, and, and, and mandating, not just uh, recommending that no new regulation is issued unless a, uh, a redundancy analysis is made, you know. Um, and second, to create a database of regulation, can, there can be a, a first step into then harmonizing it. I think that would be a good step. So I think that uh, that sets the timeline. If they were starting the word harmonization, there would be, I would say, I would be elated by that. But uh, again, um, those are the times in government. Sometimes they don't happen as quickly as you want. Ben, what do you think about this? Yeah, really interesting interview. I think it just gets to the challenge of these CISOs where you have all these cyber incident reporting requirements, whether it's through the SEC, state governments. There are a lot of sometimes conflicting demands on these CISOs. Uh, And I think it's incumbent upon the White House to the extent that it can to try and harmonize uh, some of these regulations uh, in order to minimize the disruption on these CISOs who already have a lot to worry about. Yeah, they certainly do. All right. Well, our thanks to Nick Sana from joining us. Again, he is with the FAIR Institute and also from uh, the cyber risk quantification firm Safe Security. We do appreciate him taking the time and sharing his expertise. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.